We are live after months of uh, not being. It's been like two weeks. <laughs> it's it's been since March. So, Coffee with the John, season three, episode four. We're back. We are so happy to have you guys here. There's so much going on uh, in the market. There's crazy things going on with interest rates, with uh, you know, with just everything, policies. Housing market is starting to cool down. We're starting to see buyers pull back. There's there's a lot going on. There's a lot going on in the market. And we're going to cover all of those things. We're going to obviously, like always, give you our feedback, our ideas, our opinions, and strategies that we're using to kind of protect ourselves, our investors, our investments as we go through this, you know, fun fun time in the market. What do they say? The tremendous time? Not tre I don't know what I'm looking for, but yeah, these these these, these interesting times. <laughs> don't don't try to the, get start, all, starts with the, starts with the T or something like that. Don't I don't try know. to get so educated all of a sudden. I, so, haven't, I haven't had my first cup of coffee yet. It's extremely hot right now. I tried to take a sip. Woo! Okay, give me give me give me ten minutes. You didn't switch the coffees this time, right? <laughs> That's gonna be fun. Okay, <laughs> so I don't know. Taste it and tell. Yeah. So <laughs> drink half of it and let me know which one's which. <laughs> how are you seeing the market? You just dropped the uh, San Antonio market update on Wednesday. So for those of you that haven't seen it, go to our YouTube channel. We have the uh, also on, we're on podcasts. A lot of you didn't know that, but on just regular audio podcasts anywhere you listen to podcasts. But you dropped the market update for San Antonio. How are you seeing that market right now? Uh, I mean, it's still, this is information from the beginning of, like a lot of this stuff is backdated, uh, several months. And it's one of those that, uh, the market really hasn't like interest really haven't taken off for like two, I mean, it's like two, three months. Uh, they really haven't set in, uh, as far as pricing goes, uh, the end. So a lot of that information was stuff back from April data. Uh, the beginning of May though, I can tell you that inventory did rise, but it, didn't rise a whole lot. I think it raised like 0.3. Uh, but we went from like, I think it was like 1.1 months inventory to like 1.4. So mm -hmm. it did rise more than it traditionally does. This time of year, usually inventory drops or at least holds steady. But it did, it did rise, but it didn't rise a huge amount. So it's one of the things we still have ultra low inventory. It, it could be cooling. I don't see anything like crashing yet. Like everyone says, oh, it's all everything's just going to come crashing down. It's like, it doesn't just topple over. I mean, right away, even in 2008, like, yes, it, it did happen very rapidly, but it didn't just go overnight, go away. Uh, I'm going to be very interested to see what it looks like this month's inventory mm -hmm. as like, okay, now we're heading into June. June always drops, but uh, it doesn't, I mean, it doesn't do it in typically May. Yeah. So, I mean, we're going to be covering that ex uh also the crash. I mean, you're saying we're not seeing a crash. There's, there's a lot of people freaking the hell out. That was one of the things that you and I have been talking about recently is that what's been crazy is we like to look for opposing views, right? It's not just one-sided, you know, who, this one economist that we like, that's all we listen to. We like looking at, well, who contradicts this person, right? To look at both sides and kind of, we make up our own mind with things, but that's been the kind of scary thing, I guess, of this market where this cycle that we're in right now is that people that don't agree with each other are all saying this is not good 
Yeah. Like what's coming down the line, it is not good. It doesn't look good. No, oh no, it's just like it's all different degrees of bad. You have some like eh, it's, it's it's not good, and you have the people like oh the world's a chicken little, the sky's falling kind of people. So uh, it's going to be a very interesting to see what happens. But yeah. that's why I told people market up. He's like I don't know what's going to happen. Like this is my thoughts on what I think are going to happen. But that's also why you got to tune in and watch this stuff because it's right. like as things develop, things change, and we are a month. Like behind for a lot of stuff. Well, and that's kind of what's funny is that I had somebody send me a message recently saying, you know, hey, I'm I'm gonna be looking at your your live, but you guys said that the real estate market wasn't gonna crash, and now you're saying that they could crash. And like you guys are flip flopping. I was like, we're not flip flopping anything. Like that's one thing you can't hold a belief or, or or any form of data so tight to the chest like this is the only thing well, it's a, we, same, we always change our mind like the same thing i said like i don't think it's going to crash yeah it's like it, there could it happen for sure there's always a degree of that but i think it's going to take a big economic shock to make it crash but the way things are kind of going right now is like it yeah things are going to drastically slow down appreciation might stop but when you say crash to me that's 30 prices falling 30 percent yeah. 40%. That's a crash. Well, but things it, leveling off and dropping 5% is not a crash to me. Yeah. Uh, well, what's, what's actually funny is I, I was listening to uh, a YouTuber real estate investor. Uh, he's more YouTuber than investor. But what yeah. he was saying is that the he's like, yeah, we've started seeing a massive slowdown in the market. We've had to drop our prices. I'm like, really? And then when he explains how they had to drop their prices, he's like, we were uh, pricing our properties, you know, thirty, forty thousand above the fair market value, just because the market was willing to pay for it. So now we dropped that a little bit. We're still above market value, but we just dropped that a little. I'm like, all right, that's not really dropping prices. Dropping prices to me as an investor is like you're pricing it below market value. Yeah. But he wasn't doing that. He was like just pricing it below the pumped up value that he was already. Yeah, it was, it was worth five hundred, and you listed it for six hundred. It's like exactly, or like five thirty or something like that. So we went to five ten. Like you're still over Viran comps. I still think that you're at the highest end. But you know, one of the uh, sorry guys, we have our uh, editor and videographer Dre. He's out of uh, out of San Antonio, so I'm over here trying to direct the screens. So kind of jumping around through a few screens. Um, but one of the things that I've noticed that through our marketing and, and talking to sellers and everything is we are noticing a lot of uh, a lot more fear from the market from especially from sellers where they're concerned about what's happening. They're not too sure about how the market is going to shake out, what's going to end up happening. They're uncomfortable. They're like, well, I don't know what to do if I if I sell my house, where am I going to go? What am I going to do? You know, with interest rates that keep rising, mortgages are getting higher. So they're they're kind of in, in this state of limbo where it's like they want to sell, they can't renovate, they can't even afford to renovate because those that could, they pretty much already have renovated their homes. Like right now, the people that are left are the people that can't really afford to renovate. Their home is deteriorating, but then they're scared because they're like, where do we go? Rents yeah. are sky high, prices are high, mortgages now are going sky high. So now you have kind of a of a perfect storm of unaffordability in so many of the sectors. And this is something that we I you and I have talked about. I don't know if we were talking on the show. This is the time for me as an investor that I worry about. 
It's like, we can make money when it goes up. We can make money when it goes down. But when it gets to that top and you have high prices of everything, you have downward pressure, you still have some upward pressure, but then everyone kind of goes stagnant. Like I'm hearing like, you've seen it. Uh, we're experiencing it. I've talked to another vest the other day out of California and then him and his partner invest in California and Colorado. And he's like, man, our leads have really dried up these last couple months. Like, don't blame your marketing. It's like, I think that's like industry wide. I have heard that from a lot of people that saying, yeah, recently we've definitely seen this like slowdown. And I think it, I think it's just that because there was a shock to the market where interest rates on mortgages went from four to five and a half in yeah. two months, three months. I mean, this time last year we were in the threes and now we're in the fives. So like, and it, we did it so fast. That is a very quick boom hit to the market. Um, I, I know I'm going to talk about this later in the show, but just like, you don't understand the price impact that that has on the house because like we've said several times and it's a very controversial thing all the tiktokers can try to rip me to shreds that people don't give a damn about the price of the house they care about the price <laughs> of the payment like what is my monthly payment that's what yeah. i want to know like uh, what is my payment going to be what is my going to payment going to be that's what they're really looking at not sort of the oh. house is this price or this price it's like what's my payment on that and can i maintain that payment well that that was the you know it's a it's a funny uh comments that we were getting on one of our TikToks that people were getting really pissed and people were like, oh, you guys are just so stupid. You don't know what you're talking about. Of course, the price matters. Any savvy person is going to care about the price. And I'm like, you're just talking at your ass because like most people, when they go buy something, even investors, even investors, it's not so much about the price, but it's can you cash flow? You understand? So it's like, it's what the payments are. <laughs> it was just so funny because people were talking about that. Like, Rip tried to rip said, like, you're stupid. The price definitely matters. The one guy comes in and goes, <laughs> I just bought a house. And the only thing I cared about was the payment on the house. Yeah. I was like, like, obviously, whoever was arguing the opposite is like, you're not a home buyer. Like, you're not buying a house. You're probably an right. investor. You're probably somebody like, oh, price matters. It doesn't own a home. But like, you go through pre-experience, like, what's my payment going to be on a monthly basis? Yep. That's what I want to kind of know. Yeah, and then, I mean that's something that that's what we're starting to see get affected, right? That, that with interest rates going up, that what what does my payment look like? That's what's starting to get affected. So if you want to go ahead and jump into the the first topic that you have here, okay, this is just actually an older one from a couple months ago, but I thought I thought it was kind of uh, interesting, kind of funny, uh, like thing. It was uh, by the Business Journal, and they came out and said it, the title was "Did your house make more money than you did last year?" I was like, what? And I was like, and then I knew where they're going with it. I'm like, yeah, with appreciation, depending on the price of your house, like I bet it did make a pretty good chunk of money. And it says, uh, depending on where you lived and your salary, your house may have made more money than you in the red hot housing market in 2021. According to Zillow, which found home values in 2021 grew more than the median household income in 25 of the 38 metro areas it studied. Appreciation of homes grew by 100,000 by over 100,000 in 11 of those markets. Jesus. So, it was like, yeah. yeah, yeah, prices went up drastically and if you say 20% and you live in a market that has a $300,000 house, which is a lot of market in Texas that's expensive because of our property taxes, but if you go to some of these other markets, like Going from three hundred to three sixty, yeah, they very well made of well, like, and, and that's why when you know when you ask, is the market gonna crash? It depends where, right? Like I do believe you're gonna have some markets that are gonna take a bigger hit than others, right? You have some markets, and we're gonna touch on that in a bit of overvalued markets. 
there are markets out here that are just they're they've gone up way too much. But when you have what you have in Texas and especially in San Antonio is that you have all these people that their home values have gone way up in California, the coastal cities, everything that they're able to sell that, capture that equity, come over here, buy a hell of a house and still have money left over. Mm -hmm. So that's the attractiveness of Texas is that while, yes, it's still to a lot of people that live in Texas, it's expensive. But to all these people who live in the coastal cities, to them, everything's on sale well, so much cheaper. We, we had that discussion the other day about just like how investors in different markets make so much more or so much less and stuff like that. Because like you compare like San Antonio to say a place like Vegas, where our average house is 300, but out there their average house is 500. Would you rather make 20% on 300 or 20% on 500? And you times that by ever how many houses that you do in a year, it makes a big difference. So when you have those rising prices of homes out there, though your average house in California is a million bucks and rises twenty percent, that's two hundred thousand dollars. You put twenty percent down on your house, it's like, yeah, you're walking away with six or four or five hundred grand. And now when you come here and see our houses, four or five hundred thousand dollars buys a pretty nice house. And yeah. you can almost buy the things cash. The thing that they don't realize is our tax basis is so much different. To where, yes, you buy that house $500,000 and you go out to California and they have a 0.2% tax rate. It's like, oh, my property taxes are next to nothing. But then they come here and like, wait, my property taxes are $15,000 a year? Like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they That's are. like my payment out in California. You're welcome. Like, oh, no, thank you for taking prices through the roof and bidding everything up like that because it's exactly what it is. And those prices haven't even really hit yet because right now the only tax increases is the tax increases from 2020 that are being priced into a lot of things right now. Yeah. Because of we taxes don't certify until July. And that's when everyone says, okay, now you have to put this down in your escrow. You have to factor this into everything. And it goes off that new number. So I, I think we talked about this before. You brought that up uh, in one of our talks um, about taxes, how people are not realizing that this level of appreciation is going to affect their taxes come next year, and it's going to be a huge hit on their tax bill. So like, break that down a little bit better because it's like you're okay. having this massive appreciation. People are thinking like, fine, I'm not going to sell. I'm not, you know, I'm just going to hold on. But when your neighborhood just went up, you know, an extra 50, 60, 100 grand, your property value just went up mm -hmm. that much. Okay. So, like, I'll play this out 2020 pandemic starts in April or March, whenever we had the shutdown and stuff like that. And like April, May, like prices almost went flat. And then from there, it took off. That was really only about half the year that we had that big appreciation. So, come around of summer of 21 last year you only caught that rise in prices from basically june through december so prices went up call it eight nine ten percent from that time frame come around to summer of 22 now and prices are still on a tear all of last year prices went up say call it 20 percent well now they're sad going to those tax rates instead of eight percent they're going 20 percent mm -hmm. and now everyone's going oh my god they're valuing my taxes for this much that's insane and when those taxes certify in July and your bank pays those taxes in December, your escrow is going to be massively short. So come around spring of next year, they're going to be like, ooh, we're going to increase your escrow, your payment 
three, four hundred dollars a month because we need to make up this massive shortfall that you have in your escrow based on the taxes. So we not only are we trying to catch back up what we're short, we're trying to increase your payment to get ahead of where we were at to make sure your taxes are being paid. Well, what's going to happen now when 2023 comes around and the price increases of 2022 have now been taken to effect? So now you get in, say we go up another, say it slows down a little bit, goes back to 15%. Now your taxes went up 15%. So that's 8%, 20%, 15% in three consecutive years. And then now those taxes certify in July of next year. And you're like, man, my, hopefully my payments, my escrow is caught back up. And when they make that payment in December of 23 and 24 comes around and now your escrow adjusts again for another two, $300 because they still underestimate and are still short in your escrow. Your payment's gone up four, five, six, $700 a month from where it was in just three years, Yeah, just on the housing cost. So that's when I think this thing's really going to slow down. And- and this is the part that, like, the point that we were making even last night when we were at dinner with, with Andrew was that one of the things that it's still a massive factor is people are still actually struggling financially. We're seeing in our own rental properties and everything, like, rents, yeah, they've gone up a lot in almost every area of, uh, of San Antonio and definitely every area of the U.S., the problem is, like, there's the majority of people can't keep up with those rent increases. Mm-hmm. So now... You add the mortgage increases. You have people that have fixed incomes. You have people that are doing, you know, side hustles and all these little things like uh, Uber Eats and Uber and all this stuff. Like those kind of bumps hurt these people. And and one of the things that was the most interesting to me is uh, recently I had somebody looking for an apartment and they didn't meet that three to one, you know, your rent needing to be yeah. three times what three times you make. So what they say is like, all right, we'll take less, but you need to have a cosigner. Yeah. I was like, ooh, that just sounds bad. I was like, so you're saying this person doesn't actually qualify to afford this house, right? But you're still going to give it to them as long as they have a cosigner. As a, as a landlord, as an investor, you can have a cosigner all you want, but if that person starts falling behind on payments, there's delays, there's issues, like that's going to reflect on you. That's going to reflect on your bottom line and the things that you have to do. It's like, yeah, I guess you can potentially go after the co-signer. But by the time you do all that, like you're hurting. Oh, that's that's comfortable. That's what I've really we've talked about this. I'm just like, man, if you really stretched your budget to buy a house in like, say, 2020 or 2021. And then all of a sudden your payments go up that amounts that we're talking about. That's going to be a big issue for a lot of people because we know people like will just stretch their pennies yeah. to really buy that house, put all their money down to it and be like, oh man, but the pricing goes up. I, I, I should be all right if I can get a little bit of a raise. Like, no, if when you're talking like $400 a month, like that's a big price increase. I mean, you're talking extra $5,000 a year yeah. uh, on just like an average basic entry level home here in Texas. We're like, that's where like they say it's not going to be a crash, but that's like, but that's also what I say, like, that's what rising prices and rising interest rates is designed to do 
is designed to slow that appreciation. And that's when I think it's really going to take effect because like this year, those taxes are going to certify everything's still hot. Everything's still going to normalize appreciation mortgages. Everything's going to get tight. It's next year and the year after that's when I think things are really going to start hitting and just being like, you're going to start, I see, I won't say like foreclosures, but you're going to see more inventory start hitting a market, especially if prices do increase another 20%. Somebody then has the opportunity to be like, this was a bad idea. I bought this two years ago. Prices are high. Let me sell. And that's what's going to start bringing that the inventory back up to a sustainable level. Where are they going to go? They'll have to go back to an apartment or something like that. But it's even going, very, going back to an apartment, I mean, we see the shortages of apartment. Like They'll have to move in with family. Like I, I can't yeah. remember what it was talking about is uh, Kelroy's, uh, McElroy's mm-hmm. podcast. He's like, people will figure it out. They'll they'll move into apartments together. They'll they'll get two houses or something like that. Two families will live in one house. Like they'll move down to a different area, and prices will kind of like spread out. Like they might have to go to a place uncomfortable. Like hey, I had this nice house. Now I got to move to an apartment that's in a BC area. As like because I just couldn't afford to live in the area because I stretched too far. So and those those are the things that we've talked about before that I worry about is the psychological impact that's going to have on people because you just drastically decreased your lifestyle you know what i mean like you've had to take a massive hit uh i think one thing that people have gotten used to is this kind of um you you always get used to the good stuff very very quickly right and it takes longer to get used to the bad stuff so it's like we have easy money we have you know where it's like people are gonna pay you for for just to employ you because they need bodies and you don't have to work as hard you don't have to show up as much. You can work from home. You don't have to produce as much. So you have all of these things that like people are not really used to like that. What we used to do, have to work hard to make that money and to take care of ourselves. Like people have gotten kind of comfortable and this is really going to shake them up and just make things very uncomfortable. Well, so I mean, Musk came out and said too long ago, it's like, I think it's going to be a good thing because people don't realize that they need to work. Like people have gotten extremely lazy to where it's like they're entitled or like, ah, I can be late. I can go home early. I can take a longer lunch kind of thing. What or are like, they going to do? Yeah. Like, yeah. well, but they need bodies. Like, well, when things kind of, cause we, I look at it like, uh, our generation. I mean, we're in our, our early to mid thirties. Like we didn't really experience it. We have yet to experience a recession because when we were in 2008 happened, like we were to what? 18 19 20 like really didn't know what the world was going on we really didn't have two nickels rubbed together anyways so it was like what's it really matter we were starting at the bottom we didn't have families we didn't have financial assets we didn't have back we didn't have cash we didn't understand the economy like this is the first time the millennial generation could actually like the covid recession like that really wasn't a recession it dipped shot back up here's a whole bunch of money and everything so we haven't hit like a business cycle recession that just wasn't tried to be bailed out with pumping Right. immense amount of cash to keep everybody afloat so yeah and then, and that's kind of what they're talking about now too is that we had q1 we had negative gdp growth q2 if we have negative gdp growth they're saying where we will be officially in a recession and what you and i talk about like what worries us is that being in a recession is normal it's necessary it kind of gets the bad out it cleans up the market it cleans up a lot of things it's good for the market overall yes yeah. there's going to be some pain and everything but it's actually good for the market overall but what we're seeing what it, what we're worried about is that the level of social media 
the level of media right now, the level of just pushing all the negativity, all the fear, all these things. I fear that what could have been a simple, normal, cyclical recession can turn out to be a massive, you know, recession slash depression slash, you know, massive crisis, right? Because people are going to freak the hell out. They're going to over anticipate things going on. They're going to start dropping, selling, you know, panicking, reserving, saving their money, not spending it. And as we talked about in the past, this, this economy is ran on credit. So people need to spend. And if people get scared and they don't spend, they don't travel, they don't go out, it completely stops the economy. Yeah. So it's like, you look at all these factors and you're going to know all this. So if you're listening, um, make sure you subscribe if you're finding value. But if you're listening, you want to pay attention to pretty much July 1st. Because at the end of June, end of Q2, we're going to know what... Well, yeah, July, end of July 1st, but they're not going to come out with that data. How, late do they, how long has it taken to come up with that data? No, they say pretty much by July 1st, we're going to know. Like, we're going to know what the... But who, who knows? Yeah. Well, but keep yeah. an eye around the first week of July if we had another negative GDP uh, quarter. And if we did... Then you know that's officially a recession. We're officially, by definition, in a recession. So that's going to be very curious. It's going to be very interesting, especially if you guys are very heavily invested in the stock market and everything like that. I think uh, that's going to be something that um, that you're definitely it's going to shock you because uh, a recession like that, what it typically means, the stock market could crash another twenty to thirty, maybe forty percent. You know? Yeah, because I mean, it's already like depending on what you're at, like it is already down, like. In the, what is not? 13, I think. What are the two different markets? It's the bear market and like... The bull? The 10%, 10 and then 20% is a... Depression? Uh, the the stock market about? drops 10%. It's correction. It's corrected, <laughs> but it hasn't like it hasn't is this hit a charades. Bear like, yeah, no, I was like, like am, am I guessing what the fuck right. you're saying? So like, if it drops 10%, they call it a correction. If it drops more than 20%, it's a bear market. Yeah, okay, it's like okay, we okay, haven't yes, like it's yes. corrected in the first quarter where it's gone down yes. 10, 13%. Uh, the I think the Nasdaq came close to hitting 20% bear market territory. To where yeah. like if we get another quarter, and that's why it did it is because like. And it's basically since January, you've seen like, the, especially the major tech stocks where all the money's been made, like been, big money's been made this last like two years have really come down. Yeah. Where like Netflix, Tesla, Apple, I don't know, but some yeah. of them are down like Apple, 30, Facebook. 40%, like crazy value. Snapchat's down 85% yeah. in like the last like six months. Well, the, like, the issue is that you have Apple, Facebook, they, they employ a lot of people. Like those companies dropping that much, like we, we, we all know this. If you're listening to this, it's a business podcast. You know, like we're talking about business and investing. A company like that taking that kind of hit needs to respond to their investors and their, you know, their, their board. And a lot of times it's, uh, oh, we need to let some people go then to make up some of the profit, to make up some of the losses. Well, it, it, it's also like, cause the stock market doesn't give you, it isn't an indicator of how the business is doing per, like. Direct correlation. Just because the stock price is falling does not mean that the it's a bad company. Mm -hmm. So you really need to pay attention to like the quarterly reports of like, are they profitable? What are they saying is in their quarterly report? So it's not just like, hey, their stocks dropped thirty percent. It's like, no, what are they saying? It's like, why did Netflix drop? Oh, we just didn't grow as much as we thought we were going to. Yeah. And then the market drops twenty percent because there was so much cash 
flying out there as like it's not that they it's the same thing we take with real estate it didn't go it's not going down it's just slowing down yeah but it's at such a high rate these valuations their pe ratios were like through the roof to where there's so much speculative cash in the market that a lot of that stuff is now being pulled out i just saw something somebody posted of uh retail investors like how much money retail investors put in and how much retail investors have pulled out and basically the whole last big run of the last two years was caused by retail investors and now this crash is being called by retail investors so it's like people that aren't buying holds not big hedge funds it's not big people like selling off it's no it's everyday people that are that threw their money and speculating and prices went up and now they're pulling it all the way back down i mean same thing with like the cryptocurrency markets exactly. where they went through the roof yep. and now they're dropping back down it's like it's all retail speculative people because it's uneducated people with too much cash in their hands which is why you see the federal reserve now rolling their balance sheet backward taking money out of the market yeah decreasing into of uh, the money supply in the economy yeah or at least trying to <laughs> well i mean they yeah. are they are rolling their balance sheet back yeah. at 95 billion a month and uh, increasing it so it's not just there's, interest rates going up it's them pulling money out of the market too there's a a, a really good video for you guys that uh want to learn more in depth about this stuff is uh george gammon he's a very interesting guy to follow he's he's more on the bearish side of the market so just take everything that he says with a grain of salt but like the 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 analysis that he does i think is very well a very good analysis and he just did one based on what michael burry yeah burry yeah, Michael Burry, the big short guy. The big short guy that predicted the crash and everything. He just came out. He's like, this is like watching a plane crash. What he's seeing with the market. He's like, this is just coming down. Like, it's not even that it's going to get better. Like, it's, but he's been saying that for, for a while now, too. But he broke it down and he broke down how the Fed is doing it, what they're doing with the repo market, what they're doing with mortgage backed securities, how they're kind of like, they're trying to sell those mortgage backed securities back into the market and stuff like that. But it's like the buyer pool is not as big or as deep as the Fed was when they were buying mortgage backed securities. Well and that's why banks. you see that's why you've seen interest rates rise so much is because it wasn't that like interest rates rose. Because a interest rate rising it isn't a direct correlation to mortgage rates rising. They're yeah. they're they're tied. It's like it, they control the short term over overnight rate, not the ten year interest rate. What they did do is they stopped buying bonds treasuries and mortgage-backed securities so the biggest buyer of those mortgages the last several years to depress those markets has stepped out and now the they want the retail normal economy to buy those products mm -hmm. and nobody wants to buy something at three percent they'll start they're buying it at five and a half percent now yep. like we're selling it we just <coughs> excuse me going under contract here in, uh shortly and it's at five two five like we just refinanced and closed a property of ours on a rental market in I think January this year, and we got a four percent interest rate, and that was on a debt service ratio, like yeah. income based or property based loan. Explain you, that. Explain that. What? Property based loan, like. Oh, it wasn't based off of our incomes. It's right. based off of what the property itself could produce. Mm -hmm. And now we had to buy that rate down, but we originally we were quoted like 5.25 and we had the opportunity to buy it down to four. Or now your retail then, investor. How did we buy it down? 
Like you literally buy it. You literally pay the cash exactly. is what you do. Like you, I mean, you just run an analysis like, Hey, is it worth it? How long do I plan on keeping this property? And if I'm going to, if I hold it for three years is my break even point of paying this cash versus the payment being different on the interest rate. And when I asked you like, Hey, we're going to hold this thing for at least three years. And like, yeah, I think we are. Okay. We agree. It's going to worth it to buy it down. So, so, it, so if you're, if you're listening right now and what you're hearing, you're just like, what the hell does any of that mean? Let us know. Put it in the comment. Let us know that you you know you want us to make a video on deeper into that, more in depth on how it is that we analyze our properties when we start analyzing. Are we going to refinance? Are we going to sell? Because we have fourteen properties now, and that's what we did. We there's a lot of properties that we've been holding for a few years, and we sat down. We ran our numbers. Uh, do we want to refinance? Do we want to sell a few? Where's it coming up and all this. So if this is something that you guys are curious about, uh, drop it in the comments and we'll definitely do a more in-depth video. And if you have any questions throughout this about anything real estate or what we're saying, put it in the comments. We'll, we'll definitely address any of the questions that you guys have to say. Um, but yeah, I mean, interest rates, all of that, like I just saw, I was looking just now at the 10-year treasury. It's up to 296 the 10-year. Yeah, 10 -year. I think it got really close to three at one point. It hasn't been Ooh. above three in... It, it, yeah. And when was the last time it was time. over three? Like yeah. over a decade ago, like two, the early 2000s? Yeah. Like, I don't know. So that's what it, it's, but it's just one of the things like it has to happen. Yeah. It needs to happen. Like, yeah. yes, but that's what we talk about. Like, you got to understand what's going on and be prepared for that. Like, I do think prices are going to drastically slow down on their price increases. And they also, like, I want them to do that yeah. because us as professional real estate investors, it, Freaking knocks out the speculators and the people flooding our industry that are overpaying for property that we have to compete against that are only saying like, well, yeah, but prices are going to be so much higher in six months. I can sell it then and flip it. It's like, that's what caused the 2008 recession was mentalities like that. If I can buy it on no basis, except for the fact that I don't have to do anything to it. And it's going to be worth more in six months than it is yeah. today without putting any actual real value into the property. It's just like the market went up. So I made money. Like, yeah. but what did you do? You took no, you took massive amount of risk and provided no value to anybody. So like, that's also what I kind of do want to have happen is prices to stop going up so damn much. I don't want them to fall for sure, but like, I don't want them to go up another 15% because I want all these people to back out of this prop uh, of just buying properties. Well, you know, I said it, I think in the last Coffee with the Johns that this market makes stupid people look really smart. And we've seen this time and time again with brand new investors. They've been doing this maybe a year. All of a sudden, they're they're going around teaching how to invest in real estate. And I'm like, all the shit you've done is completely speculative. Like every investment you've done, it's been something that's like, you know, oh, oh, I got into it and, and I did this and I had all these problems, but luckily I made money. And I'm like, you know, this is something that I try to tell people when you're going to, especially we all of our deals are funded by private funds, private individual that have, you know, retirement accounts, whatever it is. And they lend us the money. I tell them, like, if you're looking for other investors to lend money to whoever it is, make sure they have years of positive track record yeah. not somebody that just started in something a year ago that did one or two deals that could be accidental success just because of where the market is yeah. if somebody oh, especially last two this, years right if somebody's been doing this for let's say five six ten years and over that time their business has grown they've actually have a track record of making money consistently 
They've they've done you know hundreds of deals. They can and prove they, it. Ask ask them like if the market doesn't continue to do this, what's your plan? You know that's what like we've never seen a recession or anything like that. But it's like, but I'm very consciously aware of like what happened in 2008. What happened in 2000? That's what drove me to put that market data together, the market update. It's like, I want to know what's yeah. happening, not just being like, whoop, do, 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 do. I've always been making money. I'm just going to go about my way. Those are the people that get drastically hurt, yeah. that don't pay attention to the market, that don't study the market, that are only in it to make money. That Like that uh, post that I tagged you on on Instagram the other day, yeah. like, it was perfect. I was looking through it. I'm like, I was like, I've never worked for money. And Diddy's like, it was Ray Dalio talking to uh, Diddy. And he's like, yeah, me neither. It's like, I love the game. And just so happens that I was so good at it that I was rewarded for it financially. And like for us, like I love the game. The money's great, but it's not why I do this. And well, because, and it's what we talk about. If you're going to get into real estate, and I had this discussion with a young man uh, a few weeks ago. He came by. He wanted a, he wanted some advice on how to get started in real estate. And we we're talking about it. And he's, he's asking me, like, what's going to make me the most money? If, do I get into multifamily or wholesaling? I was like, that's the wrong question to ask. What's going to make you the most? You can make money on either one of those. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like, I, I know wholesalers that are making millions, and I know multifamily investors that are making millions. And I know multifamily investors are losing money, and wholesalers are losing money. Like, the problem, the question is, like, do you like this business? Do you care enough, like, to spend the next 100, 200 hours 100% submerged in real estate to learn oh, the ins and outs. Let's bump everything. that up. The ten thousand hours. Well, to get good at look, something. Look, if you, if, I'll be shocked. I'll be stunned if they were to spend twenty hours. Yeah, doing this stuff because that's the thing with most people. They want they 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 make up their mind. They're like, yes, I want to do real estate. All right, I watched two 10 minute YouTube videos. All right, I got it. Okay, let me go do some marketing. Yeah. You don't got shit. Ten yeah. minutes. There's so much more in real estate. You know, and our acquisition manager, Alicia, she was telling me the other day, she's like, you know, because she listens to the podcast too. And she's like, you're right. Like, we haven't done a deal. And she's done, what, 13 deals this year? And she's like, we haven't done a deal that's been the same as the previous one. I was like, exactly. Like, that is what I'm trying to tell people. Like, yes. just because you get the overall idea or a concept of wholesaling or flipping or multifamily. It's like when you get into the nuts and bolts, there's a lot of nuance there that you yeah. don't understand. I mean, there's, they, they're similar, yeah. but they're not the same. And we just bought one this week. There's five heirs to the property and there was no will. Mm -hmm. And two of the family members didn't get along with the other three. And one of them wasn't even in here in San Antonio. It's like, and we got to put that together. Mm -hmm. uh, it's like, and that, you can still wholesale something like that. So it's like, in theory, the wholesale structure could still work, but the way you put that together wasn't the same as you did a typical wholesale that was just one owner and it was a cash transaction. Like yeah. you, you gotta know, and you can't. It's one of the things that I try to tell people like all the time. Like you can't just jump in, listen to one or two videos or a podcast, and be like, "All right, I got it." No, you gotta learn the language. You yeah. gotta go deep into like. What is the vocabulary? When I was talking to this kid, I was like, you got to figure out your ARVs, you know, your fair market values. He's like, well, what's an ARV? I was like, oh, boy. Like, <laughs> what's going to make me more money, though? Yeah. I want to know that first. Like, I was like, you know, th those bro. are th the basic terms that you need to learn because that's how you're going to make money. You know, if you can't speak the language, you're not going to know what a deal looks like. Yeah. If you can't speak the language, you're not going to know how to 
find investors, how to work with investors, how to do all this. And then all of a sudden they're like, I want to flip a house. Like, okay. Wow. Let's get in the most risky part of this business, take on massive amount of debt, not knowing what I do, and I'm going to go flip a house. And that's why the whole purpose of this channel, why, why it is that we call it an investor's journey, right? We, we've been doing this for officially as a business for like a little over six years, but I've been in it since like 2012, just stumbling along. And it's one of those things that's like, it's a journey. It, we started wholesaling. We transitioned to flipping. We went into buy and hold. We've been building houses. Now we're thinking of pivoting into multifamily. We're debating depending on what the market is. And then guess Done what? Short-term maybe, rental work. Yeah. May, maybe, yeah, we got a, a, an Airbnb. And then at some point, the market shifts and we might have to go back to wholesaling or back to flipping. It's like, it's a journey. It's not one of these things that's like wholesaling or multifamily. Or I'm just going to do flipping. It's like if you're that close-minded that you're not trying to learn the business overall, you know, owner finance, storage units, mobile home parks, like there's so much to learn in this business. And if you don't love the business enough to want to learn it to that extreme and obsess over it to that extreme, when the market shifts, like you're out of business. So... I wanted to talk about this article that I found very interesting. They talk about Texas being the, the so the last housing bubble missed in, missed in Texas. Now the Lone Star State is home to the second most overvalued housing market in the country. So they're kind of insinuating that Texas is, Texas is in a bubble. So the median home in Austin is worth around $589,000. That's a 66% above the 354,000 limit that the Florida Atlantic University Research says is supported by underlining economic fundamentals. So they're saying that, you know, basically on what people can afford, Austin is 65% overvalued from what the, the national average is. Only Boise, Idaho was overvalued by more at 75%. According to uh, the Florida Atlantic University, Dallas is overvalued by 46, ranking in at 18 in the nation. Not too far behind is San Antonio, overvalued at 30%, Houston at 28. 66% uh, places that the state in the same bracket as the university in March of 2007 uh the markets like in phoenix vegas phoenix was 59 uh vegas was 72 miami was 76 this was back in 2007 that's how overvalued these markets were in 2007 those were some of the hardest hit back in 2008 was phoenix las vegas miami exactly they were hit the worst so that's why they were saying like that's not good company to be in um Fortune, um, Fortune recently asked Moody's analytics for its proprietary analysis of the u.s housing market the firm aim to find out whether local income levels could support local home prices. What were the results is of the 392 metropolitan statistical areas it measured, 149 are overvalued by at least 25%. That includes Austin overvalued by 41, Dallas 33, Houston 28, and San Antonio 25. So that means, again, what people's income is compared to what home prices is, like, these homes are overvalued by 25% just here in San Antonio. So while the, ma- while the market is overvalued, 
by historical measure, they say it isn't a fear of missing out driven bubble like it was in the 2000 housing market. Uh, yeah, in the uh, housing market. And additionally, we aren't in a subprime lending bonanza. <laughs> bonanza. Uh, Texas, <laughs> Texas uh, positioning during the last housing boom, uh, they were doing very well. Leading up to the 2008 crash, uh, crisis, housing market in Texas were barely priced above fundamentals. In March of 2007, homes in Dallas and Houston were only 3 to 5%. Um, and Austin, home prices in 2007 were actually undervalued by 0.5. So one of those things that w what's interesting is when I did my analysis of why I ended up in Texas, why I left New York to come to Texas, is when I did... I did this analysis back in 2012, and that's exactly what I saw. I saw that the whole world, the whole country had so many crashes, but Texas didn't crash. And this is why Texas didn't crash, because their home values were pretty much fair market. So they didn't have the level of subprime. And that was another thing that the politics of Texas uh, didn't allow is they didn't allow the subprime loans as much. They didn't allow the lending that you're seeing out in California where you could borrow 120% of the value of the house. Yeah. So, and then it continues is that, but if a storm once again hits the U.S. housing market, it'd be hard to imagine Texas escaping it so un, uh, es escaping it so unscathed. This time around, the Lone Star State certainly won't have home affordability as a saving grace. So you're, you know, pretty much what they're saying is that it's like homes right now, they're severely overvalued, you know, by a lot. They're comparing them to what prices, uh, properties were overvalued back in the day in Vegas, my, all the markets that were hit the hardest. So they're saying we're there, but the biggest difference, and this is why you and I say like, we don't see a housing crash coming because- it's overvalued by by but it's overvalued by people that came in with cash, yeah. that came in with the income, that came in with the money to be able to buy well, these homes. It's it that was a very good analysis. Like I'm actually to check out that entire article because I like how they say everything's overvalued, but the difference from leading up to 2008 to now is the fundamentals of the loans are so much better. Mm -hmm. And but it does not surprise me at all that these overvalued. I'm like. I don't disagree with you that everything could be potentially overvalued. I, that, I'm not surprised by that. One thing I, I found that interesting, we've always talked about like why we've liked San Antonio over like Austin or Dallas is when you look at the statistics going back, we never boom as high, but we never drop as low either. It's a much more recession proof housing market than some of the other major markets in Texas. Yeah. And just, I mean, and like it was as funny or Dallas and Austin were, drastically higher and especially Austin and that's where I find a place that a lot of money has gone recently very quickly housing prices when you're having prices appreciate 40% year over year that's where I see the uh, taxes really having an effect is a place like Austin because some of those home values like you said $589,000 are median prices like 320 yeah. they're almost double what we are out there. I get their high income places, but that's also why their prices are so much higher is it adjusts to the local market. And when you had so much cash coming in, bidding these housing prices through the absolute roof, that's where I'm very curious in 2023, 2024, what that's actually going to do when those interest rates really affect, when those tax rates really affect, what that's going to do to that market. And now that's saying like, I don't think it's going to crash because it's saying like they are overvalued. 
Well, that doesn't mean that those prices have to come down. Incomes can come up too. Yeah. To meet that balance. And that's where I, I was thinking about this the other day where why incomes don't rise because that's the last thing a company is going to rise because they, they, once you raise incomes, you can't take them down. Right. You can offer more to get the raw services you need for your products and ask more for your products on the back end. But if the market doesn't pay it, you can lower those prices. You can raise those prices. A lot of other things you can control, but your labor cost, which is the highest thing for a business to actually pay is very hard to bring down yeah. without hiring new people. But you can't go to somebody and say, Hey, um, I know we just hired you at $60,000, but I need to drop you to 45. <laughs> you want to stay or not? Like that, that doesn't happen very often. Yeah. So that's why incomes are the last thing to rise in or for those things. And like we were talking last night, it's, it's now please, you know, uh, for those of you that get triggered very easily, put on your earmuffs. Um, this is one of the issues I have every time they say, we're just going to tax the rich, right? It's, it's the things that people don't understand is how that actually works is you're going to tax the rich. All right, go ahead, tax the rich. What the rich are going to do, the rich own real estate. They own businesses. That's why they're rich. They're not rich by just sheer accident. That money just keeps flowing into their pocket. They're rich because of the businesses they have. So now you're taxing them more. So if they're selling sneakers, all of a sudden their sneakers cost more money. Yeah. So they're taxing them more to give more money to the lower income people. And then the products that the lower income people buy is going up so they're paying more for that money so that money that they just taxed when full circle came right back to them again well so that's why like, inflation so so dangerous and that's why uh, price instabilities is so dangerous for stuff like that is because prices can increase so much because like these are everyday products they need and those the products they need to go into those to make that sneaker have yeah. gone up so they sell that back to like well now this hurts all these people that their incomes aren't rising because yeah because our products, like everything is moving so fast. Supply chains uh, are, are all disrupted to where, like we've talked about this previously, like who's making more money? Mm -hmm. It's like, and that's why I said, I think it's really spread out because things are so volatile of products right now and everything is so still shook up from the pandemic and stuff like that, that like everyone's raising their prices. Like, oh, so they're making so much more money. Well, somebody along that chain is losing money, making money. Who is it? It's like, well, I think it's a little bit of everybody because everybody is making more because there's so much extra cash. That's what causes inflation is there's too many dollars in the system chasing not enough products. And that's why I think like the GDP kind of dropped uh, recently is because there's so much supply chain and there's so much extra cash. You have this huge demand and we've bought everything up in 2021 and it can't supply it to allow it to keep growing. That's why the Federal Reserve is rolling back their quantitative easing they did is because there's too much cash in the market. People, there's too much money chasing too few products and it's bringing prices up drastically because everyone's overpaying trying to get those products to sell back to the market. And, and I think that's the issue when you hear all these policies that they're trying to come out with to help all this, all these situations, they keep blaming investors, right? It's, it's the fault of these greedy investors of, of, of the rich people of all this. And it's like, it's the problem that we're having is much deeper than that. It's supply chain issues. It's been, you know, you, you can't get materials. There's shortages everywhere you go. So like, to your point, like, there's too much money chasing the same product because there's only one of it. Well, it's like, why we did lumber prices go from 300 a board foot up to like 1,700 or 1,400, whatever it got yeah. to? It's like, 
because there was a massive demand for housing. Yeah. And then you cut the supply off at the knees and then you had a huge demand on the other side. Well, the only way to incentivize to get the very the raw product you need, like the lumber, is everybody just starts paying more all the way down that line. And that's what the, the rising interest rates is designed to do. It's like we need to relieve those pressures and let the supply chains catch back up. So to kind of hit on that topic, uh, there was this uh, two reasons that the U.S. is in major housing shortage, which I found uh, interesting, especially when they're saying that homes uh, inventory is going to start rising. So it says, according to the Census Bureau, building permits for new residential construction dropped to a five-month low in April. So much of that decline was in single-family homes. Meanwhile, spring homebuyer demand helped us push home prices up 15.5% year-over-year to a median selling of 424. So builders still have a backlog of uncompleted homes to get through before they can break ground on new projects. Um, it was some guy from First American whatever. Uh, pointing out that the number of single-family homes that have been approved for construction but not started is up 8.5% since this time last year, according to the census data. And then you have the White House that proposes using federal dollars to boost affordable housing supply. They, What they're saying is like they need to attract workers back to home building industry, resolving rising lumber and building material prices and supply chain bottlenecks that are raising home uh, housing costs far faster than wages. So they're saying like the White House is proposing to do use federal dollars to do like zoning and other things. But they're like the problem that we're having as builders is labor. We can't find labor because when they had the crash happen, a lot of these builders and everybody, they took a massive hit. So the laborers they had had to go look for another source of income. And a lot of them found a source of income that requires them to work a lot less get paid maybe the same, maybe a little bit less, sometimes a little bit more, but they are not going back to construction. So yeah. now you have a massive labor shortage, which has caused, it continues to uh, cause problems in the uh, supply chain. So you have a backlog of supply chain. And just now I was listening to Ken McElroy uh, talking about like they bought a 600 unit uh, apartment building here in San Antonio. He's like, yeah, we, we're calling all the manufacturers and we have to order 600 toilets, 600 this, 600 that. So I'm like, you have a big builder in San Antonio doing that? That hurts everybody that's yeah. trying to find toilets and stuff like that. And even him, he's like, yeah, we wanted this flooring, but we had to go ahead and pay more and get this flooring because it was the only one they had in stock. We could not get enough of the flooring that we actually wanted that was cheaper. So it's making them build at such high prices that's like all of that goes straight to the end consumer so why are prices going up because things cost too much to do it's not like everybody wants to make money don't get me wrong no. i'm not saying like builders are out here for charity but when well, it's, it's also not charity it's like what you're talking about like smart money doesn't lose money yeah and if they're buying it because they need to get a return, it's like they're not going to be like, ah, it cost us more to do this. So we'll just go ahead and lose money and give pass on that discount. to it's like, like whatever the market can bear. That's why right now the rental price is so damn high. Yeah. It's like there's just no inventory and they're trying to add inventory. But the inventory that is coming online is extremely expensive. So that's pushing everybody, bringing prices up and pushing everybody down to those lower brackets and absorbing all the inventory of the lower priced homes. Well, and then they, they also continue by saying that, you know, you have 90% of uh, the builders are reporting delays 
in material shortages. So we know how expensive delays can be, especially when you're building and doing all that, holding costs, money costs, all of that. It's increasing the cost of the projects. And then the uh, Bureau of Labor Statistics says that the prices of goods used in residential construction have climbed 4.9% since the start of 2022 and a total of 19.2% uh, since this time last year. So over this last year, prices have gone up 19% for building a residential construction. Overall, prices have risen 35.6% since the start of the pandemic. And they're likely to continue you know kind of rising. Interesting about that, mm. median house prices increased by twenty percent. Hmm. I'm not good at math, but there's some correlation there. Yeah. <laughs> As like all oh, the developers are making all this money, yeah. it's like you just like the stats show like their inputs increased by twenty percent, housing prices increased by twenty percent. Exactly. Like the only thing that rose is all the people's stress levels in between. Like that's what rose. Like yeah. their their pockets didn't increase. Yeah, and, and that's the stuff that people need to understand. It's like, do you have greedy investors out there? One thousand percent. I'm not saying you don't. Um, what I am saying is that the majority of them that run businesses, they won't run a business if they're purely greedy. They can't. They wouldn't mm -hmm. sustain it. They got to run what's with the market. Like if they keep overcharging everything, it gets to a point where people are just not going to buy from them. Right. So they got to price it what it is. And when you're looking at these prices, I mean, it's beyond insane. And then the article finishes up with, um, according to the uh, Associated Builders and, and Contractors Association, the construction industry will need to attract nearly 650,000 additional workers on top of its normal pace of hiring in 2022. So on top of <laughs> the normal pace, they need to attract another 650. Additionally, the organization expects an estimated 1.2 million construction workers will leave their jobs for other industries by the end of the year. So not only do they need 650 more than they're typically hiring, they're expecting 1.2 million to actually leave. So it's the sh labor shortage in construction so basically you need is to insane. One, a net of 1.8 million new people to the industry. So when you guys talk, when we talk about, you know, what's the market going to do? Is it going to crash? All these things. These are all things that play a factor in it. These, these things play a factor in supply chains. These play a factor in, you know, if there's still demand, there's still demand in states like Texas, like Florida, more and more people are going, especially because of policies and whatever it is that it's causing problems in these other states, people are coming here. But when you're lacking the inventory, the only thing it is, is like you have too many people going after too few uh, inventory. So it's supply and demand. And now what you and I have talked about and what we're seeing with, we do a lot of marketing. We do direct to seller marketing. And when we're talking to these sellers, they want to sell, but they don't, they're not going to. They don't know what to do. They don't know, they don't know where to go. They're worried about it. They're scared. They don't know what the heck is going to happen. So they're not selling. Then you have these companies, what is it, Black BlackRock? They own like 80,000 homes or some shit. And they, they're not flipping houses. They're buying for their, for their inventory. So they're holding on to a lot of inventory. So until that hits a point where, you know, they're hitting their four or five-year mark where their IRR starts depleting, they're not going to throw those properties in the market. So over the next year or two, like inventory is still pretty tight. I don't yeah. see inventory 
rising well, all that much. And it's like real estate in its whole is a huge market, but it's very hyper local to the certain areas. So a topic that I had in here is that we've talked about as long as you have people coming to a market, like your economy is growing. That's what really drives a market and gives it a good fundamental for the over the look over the long term. So, and something for me that was actually surprised me, and it was by the uh, business journal that said San Antonio gained the largest number of newcomers in the country between 2020 and 2021. As San Antonio experienced the country's biggest spike in new resident residents between July 2020 and July 2021, according to new data from the U.S. Census Bureau. The Bureau indicates San Antonio's population grew uh, an increase of 13,000 626 people, more than any other city in the nation. Notably, San Antonio and Fort Worth are among the only major Texas cities to show positive growth, while the population in Dallas, Houston, and El Paso showed declines, with their outlying counties absorbing absorbing most of the growth experienced in those areas. So let's not, you got to remember, it's like the actual city of Dallas and Houston. They moved to the suburbs of like Plano and uh, some of those other cities and stuff like mm -hmm. that. So the city itself shrank, but the Metroplex might have still had a positive population growth. That's something to keep in mind. Austin grew by only 1,056 newcomers. According to the data from the IRS, most of the migrants into Bear County comes from Guadalupe, Harris, Travis, and Comal counties, which to me, we've talked about like, People are going to move south. Like Austin is so damn expensive that they like when a company's looking at relocating, mm -hmm. they have to look like say they're moving ten uh, two thousand employees. They have to look at a market like all right, we pay our employees this amount of much money. If we move them to Texas, where can they afford to live? Exactly. And they're going to start like Austin, so expensive, can't get housing there. The traffic is terrible, but we need to be close to Austin for what our business does. 90 miles south, you got San Antonio, and the housing prices is half the cost. The road system is far superior to that. Like, oh, let's start looking at that. So now when you see Harris, Travis, Guadalupe, and Kamau, I mean, besides Guadalupe, that's the 35 corridor between, I mean, Austin is in Travis, and then you got Hayes County, Kamau, and then Bear. And so people are moving south. So all told, around 40,000 of the county's 86,000 inbound migrants came from within the state. So it was very interesting to me looking at that information, like San Antonio in over that year, I'm curious what's going to be this next year when this data comes out. I wish they could do a better job of getting it out quicker than eight yeah. months later, but uh, that's what we work with. But to see San Antonio continue to have that growth and to see it's coming from in the state, it's moving south from Austin. It's been like what we've always talked about, like, it comes to fruition or it's like basic economics. Like why as somebody put in the comments, like great analysis and overlooking, um, looking at the whole picture. It's like, you have to look at the whole picture. Yeah. You have to look at the past. You have to look at the present to be able to predict and place your bets of what's going to happen in the future. You know, one, one thing we saw a presentation this week by, uh, Patrick, but David, PD. and one of the things that he mentioned that I really liked is he says, it's not, it's not so much predicting, but anticipating is you got to get better at anticipating what could potentially happen. Now, this is also a double-edged sword because you can anticipate in so much that you pay, you get paralyzed, right? You anticipate to a point where it's like, all the people that we've been hearing, and you and I have talked about it quite a few times, about like, damn, like, 
what do we do? <laughs> you know, you're looking at the market, you're looking at all these things. It's like, it doesn't sound good. It doesn't look good. Like, what is, what is something, what is it that an investor can do to prepare for something like this? You understand? Because it's not all doom and gloom. Like, one of the things that, if you look at any savvy investor in the history, they always said, like, the people that made the most money have made it during bad times. Yeah. So you, as an investor, you got to ask yourself, how am I positioned to do better in a bad economy? Right? When you ask yourself that question, when you're really analyzing, like, how can I make money in a bad economy? What is it that I can do? I, I did a poll recently on Instagram and Facebook and stuff asking people, like, do you think a crash is coming? You know, and it was it was kind of torn. It wasn't all one-sided, but it was a leaning more to people saying no. And then I asked uh, a follow-up. I was like, are you prepared in case you're wrong? And that one, it wasn't so much that I cared about the answer. I was hoping that it would spark them to think about, shit, you know, what if I am wrong? Like, what if I'm wrong and the market does crash in the next six to 18 months? What do I do as an investor? What my whole business has been wholesaling. My whole business has been flipping. How is my business going to get affected if the market crashes? What does a crash potentially looks like, right? Because that, that's the questions that we ask all the time, which is why whenever things happen, we're able to pivot very quickly and be okay. Because we're looking at, it's like, what's the worst case scenario here? What's the worst case scenario here? Once you're prepared. Uh, I love that quote from Ray Dalio. He's like, if you are worrying, you don't need to worry. But if you don't worry, you need to worry, right? So it's like, if you're not worrying... Then yeah, you should worry because you're yeah. think you're you're just not paying attention to what's going on. Yeah. But if you are worrying, then you'll be okay because you're always trying to look at the potential well, pitfalls. The caveat, that's like uh, Warren Buffett's like, money is made when there's blood in the streets. Yeah. And it's like when everybody's running away, that's when you jump in and do stuff and like and where the deals are at and to well, be at. And that that's my worry too is that you you look at where we are right now in the economy and everything and where we are in society social media being as big as it is, the news being as big as it is. I mean, just this past week that we had that tragedy that happened in Uvalde, it's like, everybody's like, oh, gun control, this and that. And I was like, how about media control? Like, you know, people get ideas of doing shit like this because they see how how much it's promoted on media everywhere. Like yeah. They're, they're, they're psychologically kind of sick individuals. Yeah. They know that like, they know they can do some crazy shit and they're going to see their work on media for the next week or so. And that gets them excited. You understand? So it's like, there's blame to go around for all of this stuff that when you look at a market crash and I'm not getting political or anything, so please don't get triggered by this. What I'm trying to say is that right now where we are with social media, with everything, it makes things worse because it moves faster, it spreads. There's rumors, there's fear. Not everything is based on facts. So it's like- Did you just agree with me? Like I've been saying for years that what? social media is bad because it spreads all that stuff. We're like, no, no it's good, it's I good. say, I always <laughs> say the same thing. You need to use social media. You can't have social media use you, right? Like there are people that go on social media and they get stressed the hell out because yeah. they're seeing what other people are doing, their success, all this. They're comparing themselves to these people. And it's like, yo, they, people on social media are their own PR agents. I've seen investors or so-called investors. They're like, oh yeah, I do 14 deals a month. I'm like, there's no way to really prove that. 
Like you can say you do whatever you do. How do we prove that? Like show, I mean, show me the HUDs. They don't. They're yeah. not. They're never showing you the projects that they're doing. They're never showing you where they're going, what they're doing, what houses they're working on. So it's like they say it. So people are like, "Wow, man, that guy's so cool." It's like, but you don't know if that's exactly what they do. Oh, but they drive a Ferrari. How do you know they didn't rent it for the day? Yeah. How do you know they're not just financing it and spending every dollar they make just to be able to, you know, posture that they have a Ferrari, right? It's it's those things that like to me, I'm. I say like you got to use social media. If you're letting social media use you, you're going to have a massive problem. But I did want to make a little transition because another trending topic and another thing that's been uh, uh, popular, more popular. No, I don't know. It's not more popular, but it's been uh, just as popular, I guess, as Bitcoin is multifamily. We've seen, you know, everybody and their mother want to get into multifamily. It's sexy. It's cool. We're syndicating. You know, we're so cool because we're syndicating and we're getting into multifamily. And look at my IRR and all this. Oh, and, don't look at my IRR. Look at what I think my IRR is going to well, be on that, this. That, that's, that's the point, right? Like most of these people, we've, we've been pitched multifamily deals for quite some time now. And every time. Every time we get, I get one of those pitches and I'm looking at it, I'm like, all right, so the deal right now doesn't make sense. But you're telling me that you're going to jack up the rents this much, you know, two, three, four hundred dollars $400, and then this deal is going to make sense. I'm like, hmm, that sounds terrible. Well, it does you know? sound like... I can make any deal look good on a spreadsheet. Yeah. Like, oh, they want twenty million. Yeah, but somebody else bid twenty one and a half or twenty and a half. Well, let's bid twenty one then. But then this doesn't do the IR. Well, I think instead of two hundred rents, we can get two fifty higher in rents. Now the IR is right up there. I right think it's like yeah. when you just all that's all you got to do is like when you're good at finding deals and good rating money, but not a good operator in the middle. Like you can make any deal look good yep. on paper. It's like, well, I can just, and you can find deals. You just pay more than everybody else and then say you're going to raise the rents more than everybody else. But when that's your track record and you're never hitting your IRRs, you're never hitting your returns, you're never hitting those rent rises. Or the market shifts. Well, the market interest, sh interest rates, rates go up. <laughs> yeah. The market shifts, interest rates go up. All of a sudden, you're not renting for as high as you thought you were going to rent. You're not buying for as low as you thought you were going to buy. Like your mortgage is much higher than you thought it was going to be. So it's like, well, we'll just charge more rent. It's like, well, the market needs to be able to sustain that. Except for your guy down the street over here didn't sell his property and he bought it 10 years ago and... He's just gonna raise his rents a hundred dollars. Exactly. Because he and can. yeah, you're not. You might have nicer paint and look prettier and have a newer features in the property. But like, that's I can't afford fourteen hundred. This guy's got this for thirteen hundred. It's just not as new. Yeah. I'll go rent over here. I'm fine. Yeah. So so this article is. A, I really found it to be very interesting. Um, sales of apartment buildings broke records during the pandemic when rents soared to record levels. Prices of apartment buildings rose even more rapidly as investors bet that rents would continue to rise in the future. So the prices of apartment buildings went up higher just because they were betting that the rents were going to go up higher. Talk about speculation. According to uh, CBRE Group, the annual volume of rental apartment purchases has nearly doubled between 2019 and 2021. In the first quarter of 22. 
Uh, investors spent $63 billion on apartment buildings, the highest figure on record. Two things that happened recently that make finding uh, future profits more challenging. Investors have started buying apartment buildings at prices that have risen so fast that their rate of return is decreasing. So prices paid for apartment buildings during the first quarter of this year increased by 22.4%. Say that again? Prices, prices increased by what? Prices paid for apartment buildings during the first quarter of this year increased by 22.4%. That's in a quarter. That's in not in a year. In one quarter. Yes. During the same quarter of uh, last year. So negative leverage is what they're starting to, what, what they call this. The cool term. Is, yeah. So <laughs> negative n- leverage. Not, not cool to have as part of your investment strategy, yeah. but yeah. So negative leverage, interest rates then rose sharply. Multifamily initial returns rates have fallen a percentage point or more from their interest rate on their mortgages. So you have interest rates rising and their mortgage has gone up a, you know a percentage point so that's ridiculous well because that's that, a ridiculous change ridiculous go ahead okay uh no word it's something i just thought of where we always talk about like what's the difference between multifamily and single family it's a discussion we've been had recently when we're looking to get into multifamily and uh do different things um we say that it's it's very hard to compare single family to multifamily because there's two different loan products and two different buyers. Multifamily, it's investors selling to investors. You don't have a single family mom and dad with two kids trying to buy an apartment complex for their long-term house. They also get completely separate loan products to where it's very hard for us as single family residential investors to compete with a multifamily when you have different buyers on each side, mm-hmm. meaning I have to compete with returns against multifamily when their only buyer is other investors on our side and the pro- loan product they can get on that side. They're getting commercial loans with a whole different level of speculation. They're usually 25 year fixed, 20 year fixed with a five year balloon and a whole different slew of stuff on our side. Single family, we have to compete with buyers that can get a 30 year fixed rate loan. It's unheard of in the commercial space. Now up to 40 years. And now up to 40 (laughs) years and stuff like that. We have a buyer on our side that we have to compete with on the purchasing price that drive our returns down because it drives the housing prices up because of the type of payments they can pay to get houses. But now the caveat to that is when interest rates spike, prices go up so damn much that brings down the price of multifamily and we on the single family side still have this buyer over here that can pay a higher price because they have a completely different purpose and loan product they can get for that house. Meaning that single family residential, in my mind, can be a little more stable than what multifamily does oh, yeah. because we have a different buyer in our market that can access a completely different loan product for a different, complete different reason for purchasing or Years, a mom and pop isn't buying a house to live in their entire year or multifamily live in their house for entire year or yeah. years, their life. We do on our single family side. So it's a very interesting dynamic. I just thought of when you started reading yeah, that. I'm yeah. like, yeah, that's actually the advantage of single family. We've been talking about for years of like, we have way more liquidity in our market to sell if interest rates spike because people still need a place to live. Right. And, and this is not to say like always, don't get into multifamily. This is just to say, understand what you're getting into before you get into it. Don't get into it like 
freaking Bitcoin just because everybody's saying it's the next hot thing if you don't understand why you should be owning that or why you should be investing in it. So it, go, it goes on to say that, you know, because of these higher interest rates, this means that landlords make less money on their buildings than their banks. So their banks, banks are making more money than the people that own the building, <laughs> even though the people that own the building yeah, with are taking five more and risk. Half, but your cap is five. It's like, yeah, yeah they're making so, more money. So this has uh, not been widespread since the subprime crisis when defaults on apartment building loans increased. Investors haven't learned their lesson from the years before 2008 when buyers overpaid for buildings and suffered when financial markets yeah, crashed. I disagree with that. Right but, there. It's like, I don't think, I think the investors that live through that learn their lesson. The problem is you have this slew of new people getting into this that didn't experience that. They're only right. chasing the hot topic and the money, not understanding what the past was. And they're so eager just to get that deal, to get that contract, to raise that money. So in my mind, it's like, cause they get a massive acquisition fee. It's not like they make money on the backside. It's like, no, they make money up front. Yep. They make money in the middle. They don't make money. In the, they do make money in the back end if you get your preferred return, but yeah. you're the investor stuck holding the bag on the backside. But that's where they're just so eager. It's like those people didn't learn their lessons. Well, they don't want to learn those lessons because it's bad. It's negative. I, I don't I, see that. After I finish this this little section of the article, I'll, I'll tell you a little story that of somebody that just got into some uh, in, into an interesting uh, investment. So many apartment investors believe they will survive a period of diminishing returns because they expect rents to rise at a faster rate, boosting their returns over time. So, you know, talk about being optimistic. Given that many tenants have already been pinched, the average rent for any rental unit rose nearly 17% from a prior year. And we know it's been a lot higher depending on which area you're living in. So even a minor crisis, a minor crisis wave could have far-reaching consequences for the financial sector as there is no huge amount of money tied up in the retail uh, in the rental apartment sector. According to the Mortgage Bankers Association, outstanding mortgage loans backed by multifamily buildings have more than doubled to 1.8 trillion since the financial crisis. Typically, you want to you want the cap rate to be higher this is what's funny. You want typically you want the cap rate to be higher than your mortgage rate, but there has been a steady decline in these profitable rates since 2015. So not since right now the pandemic, since 2015 there's been a decline. Now, most are buying at 3.5% cap rate with mortgages at over 4.5%. So that that was that uh what was that term again? Negative leverage. Right. So that's what those negative leverage is like, oh, I get three and a half and I'm paying the bank five and a half. And, and their their solution is, you know, let's raise rents even higher to increase their cap. Uh, but how can they when rents have already gone up so drastically? So you're looking at that. And this is what we were talking about. Like, this is what we consider to be gambling in the market. Right. You are buying an investment that doesn't make sense. Because the numbers are tight, but you're saying, no, 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 it's okay. Because we're actually just going to, the way the market is going, we're going to just keep jacking up rents. And eventually, this will make sense. So here's the issue that I see. If you are one of these massive hedge funds, one of these massive hedge funds or these banks that are buying these apartment buildings and all that, you can afford to take that loss temporarily. You can afford it. Right? Because they're much longer term. It's like, I have a 20-year time horizon. Exactly. 
Exactly. So you can afford to do that. The issue is that the majority of the investors that we know, they're not major hedge funds. They're not big investors. They're local. They're small. They're grouping together a few attorneys or accountants or whoever have high incomes, and they're pulling them uh, through um, syndications, syndications and everything to get into this, hoping that they're going to do this. And there's an investor I actually ran into recently. And we were just talking about multifamily. We were talking about all this. And he's like, yeah, I've been curious about multifamily. So I actually invested in a syndication deal. And I was like, oh, how's it going? He's like, ah, not that good. He's like, we, we're not even getting our preferred return right now. He's like, they're, they're, they still have a lot of vacancy. They haven't been able to rent it out as they thought they would at the prices they thought they would. And I was like, damn. I was like, that's in this market, like we put a property out for rent and rents in less than a week. Mm -hmm. So they are that all that tells me is that you're severely overpricing those rents or to not be able to rent them or you're not. Well, we know a few investors that do multifamily and they tell us that they're like, oh, no, you don't need to do that much. You just clean it up, maybe put some carpeting and you put it back on the market for like three hundred dollars more because of this. And I'm like, those are bad habits you're getting into yeah. because you're not. You're not putting out a good product. You're just thinking just because people need a place to live, they'll rent anything. And it's going to get to a point where people are like, no, that's that's a little too much. Also, they're doing it because they can. It's mm -hmm. like what's going to increase with that is the amount of evictions that come out of that. Because like we've experienced it. Like I just rented one of our properties and the amount of people that were going for these rents were on paper. It's like, hey, you make the three times gross income and stuff like that. Okay, good deal. Let's go through, uh, get, go through the application process, show the house. Like I try to vet them as much as possible so I don't have to drive out to these houses as much get out there. All right, we're good to go. Do you like the house? Yes. Okay, here. And I send the email and I tell them up front, here's all the stuff you need to pay. And like, okay, okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then not, but twice on the same house, somebody got a hold of me. We're like, Hey, so can we make the security deposit and the rent and stuff over time? No. <laughs> and then I told them like, Hey, here's the pet fee. Here's the security deposit. And this is a prorated rent for May. And it's like, and that get our next payments due in July. Right. No, your next payment is due in June. Like you got to pay me upfront for my security deposit and you got to pay me for the month you're going to rent it in May. And then June, you got to pay me for June. Like you, you're so greedy. You want to get paid every month. Oh, uh, but it's like, and like, <laughs> oh, well, I can't afford that. It's like, oh my goodness. Where everyone's like, they are paycheck to pay. They're one crisis away from not being able to afford the house. You do that in apartment buildings and you're trying to jack these rents up and you're like, just, just get somebody in there. Just get somebody in there. Well, foreclosure, like evictions cost you a hell of a lot more than just having somebody like spending the time and waiting to get somebody in there yeah. because now you got two, three months of sitting there that a rent that you can't even drop the rent to get somebody in there. Like they're out. And it's like, and that's something that worries me when you have price increase like that, you're going to have evictions rise. When evictions rise, people start crying and freaking out because they have no affordable and it is, it does suck. And then who gets involved? Politicians. Yep. Politicians get in there and they have a problem because their voter base is there catering to what the voters are saying. And they start creating policies like, well, now that's what happened in California. If you look at it from the 80s, 90s, and 2000s, like prices rose so damn fast the last 30 years that all these policies came in. Whereas like the fastest price increases that also had the highest um, eviction cases that have some of the most like predatory laws written towards landlords, your coastal, like you have your New Yorks, your Washingtons, your Seattle, or your Washingtons, your Oregons, your Californias, New York, and um, DC areas, like yeah. That's where that stuff, because prices went up so fast that it's the story being played all over again. Yep. 
That's yeah. what worries me. Well, so here's here's the advice. Um, take it for what it is. Is if you are looking to get into the way that it, if you're looking to invest into multifamily through syndication, what you need to do is what you need to keep in mind is you need to find good operators first. And good operators are not operators that started a year or two ago and they have one or two apartment buildings under their belt. You want to find somebody that's been doing this for more than just the pandemic era, right? Prior to the pandemic, you want somebody that's been doing this for five to 10 years that have done, you know, over 10 apartment buildings successfully syndicated, operated. They have the experience. Or understand your risk that you're taking and demand a bigger piece of the pie. Yeah. Well, good luck with that. Because the <laughs> yeah. reason the reason I'm saying good luck with that is that it's not hard to find stupid money exactly, right now. Exactly. That's so a, so you you're if you do that you're gonna lose out every single time, right? Because there is stupid money out there. But that's the point. It's okay for you to lose out because you're not going after a stupid investment. Yeah. Right. I'd rather you chase a smart investment. Find a good operator that has the experience. And then invest with that person, right? You're going to increase your odds of actually making money on these deals because like this guy was telling me, he says, look, the, the, the monthlies are fine and like the monthly cash flow and the draws they get, he's like, they're fine. But the reason we invest in multifamily is we want that two, three X of our money when that property sells, right? So they're looking for that uh, value appreciation, the, the rent growth, so the values go up and all of that. They're looking for that. And if you can't provide that, because you bought, you overpaid for a property, and your only hope is that you're going to be able to jack up rents astronomically just for the value of this property to go up. Like, you know, I'm not saying you can't do that. I'm just saying that you don't know yeah. if you can or can't, and that to me is is insane. Yeah, it's just crazy. I mean, it's gambling. Yeah. So that's our our, our little rant on multifamily. So. <laughs> I hope uh, that that helps you guys out. And I, if you have any questions and everything, like always, comment below. Make sure you subscribe. Um, that way you're not missing any of these uh, lives where we're covering all the strategies and things that we're doing. And and even then, that it just reminded me, like, we're looking to get into multifamily ourselves. But what are we doing? We're cautious as hell. We're, we're, we're coming in. We're analyzing deals. We're analyzing properties. We're looking at things. We're getting educated. We're talking to people that have been doing this for years, yeah. not that just started a few months ago and they picked up a property and now all of a sudden they feel like they're well, multifamily that's coaches. Every, everyone on the topic of inflation and things like that, we can switch a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, everyone's like, oh, but I got to do something with my money because inflation's beating it to death. And that pushes people into speculative investments. It says, well, I got all this money. I need to do something with it. I need to do something. I just can't have a cash sitting still. Like it's getting beat to death by inflation. Like, but being patient and cautious is still a good thing. And having the mental fortitude to be like, look, yes, inflation is high, but I'd rather wait and have my money be depleted by say two years of inflation. Say it's 10, 20%. To call it 20%. Terrible but I'd rather still have that money yeah. than put it into something that says, I'm going to get these returns and I'm going to put it to work, but it doesn't work. 
and you don't get that money. And now your money's stuck in that investment. So let's say this market changes and it does drop or does get much more difficult and good deals start becoming available, but you can't get your money out. And when they do eventually sell that property, you only get 20,000 back versus the 40,000 you put into the deal. Yeah. So it's like being cautious, patient, and educating yourself in these times is very, very, very important. And I'd say it's even more important than any other time. It's like, oh, just because you have money, sitting account, getting beat up by inflation, earning 0.1% uh, on your bank CDs or whatever it may be. It's like, but yeah, that's still not a bad thing. If you're watching the market to see when is a good opportunity to put something in with a great person that knows how to make you get that return. Yeah. You still have the capital. You still have the liquidity. Yep. Yeah. And that that's definitely one of the things that we, we were talking last night with our, our friend is that, you know, he he's invested. We we're kind of looking at his portfolio. Like he's invested in real estate, has a little bit of Bitcoin, some stocks, retirement. He's like, what do you guys think? I'm like, I think, you know, you, you're, you're good, you know, but a little really heavy on real estate, which is fine. We're in real estate. It's kind of hard when you're yeah. in this business to not have heavy real estate. But one of the things I told him, I was like, try your best to have more liquidity available because here's what I'm looking at. And this is everything that we're talking about is, you know, our, our opinion. Okay. So don't take this, you know, seek out your financial advisor, accountant, attorney, whoever it is that you need to talk to. You know, we don't do legal advice or accounting advice. We're not veterinarians. We're, we're just giving you our opinion. And the way that we look at it, the way that we see it is you need that dry powder because when a recession hits, we believe people are going to panic. People are going to freak out and you're going to have some amazing opportunities. I think you're going to have people, especially in the commercial real estate space, you're going to have people freaking the hell out and selling for a lot less than what they're in it for. Because they're going to be thinking that this market is going to be tanking even further. Because that's usually what drives the market to tank further. Is people think it's going to crash. Everybody starts offloading and it crashes even more. Right? So it's going to be something that I've, if it goes that direction, having liquidity, you're going to be able to pick up properties. And you're going to be able to do deals at massive discounted rates. And if that doesn't happen, you still have the capital that you can just get into the market and invest anyway. Yeah. So either way, you're protected. You understand? Like that's that's kind of my opinion on it. Like, what do you think? Uh, I mean, I agree 100%. It's like having some liquidity, and it's also like if an investment starts to suck for two, three years, mm -hmm. and you do lose, say uh, rents go down or prices go whatever it may happen, don't and you can have the liquidity to shore that piece up, shore that portfolio up, and not have to sell the thing. It's like selling only makes it worse. That's why you have those booms and busts because people get over, too over leveraged and they have to sell in for less than what they bought. So having liquidity solves that problem. Having the um, your reserves as a personal investor, be like, hey, I don't want to sell in my portfolio. I'm going to have some vacancies. I'm going to have some things where my portfolio is going flat or loses money. But I have liquidity and savings to hold that and withstand the storm or withstand the storm. Yeah. Uh, sure. Sure. Yeah, we'll go with that. So, But I wanted to touch on this article that, and this is not just one article. This is actually, I've seen it across the board in a few different ways, uh, a few different uh, places talking about it. You have real estate investors have been snatching up homes, preventing everyday buyers from getting a piece of the pie. Lawmakers and HOAs want to stand in their way. So you're going to, you're we're starting to see cities and lawmakers and everything 
coming after investors because they're blaming investors for what's going on in the market at this moment. So the article goes to say, whether they're looking for long-term rentals or to make a quick flip, investors like Invitation Homes, the owner of 83,000 properties, and mom-and-pop operators are making it harder for people to compete when looking to buy in their own neighborhoods. Investors bought 33% of U.S. homes on the market in January alone, the highest percentage in at least a decade. And that's 33% of the U.S. homes on the market. Like, I imagine what it is, like, people like us that we buy off-market deals. Like, I'm sure it's, uh, we're, we're sanching up a lot of the, the inventory. Some of the investors have turned aggressive with their tactics, raising alarms from Newark, New Jersey, to Dallas and California state capital. And the way that they've been getting aggressive is, it feels like we're being preyed upon, says uh, a homeowner, because they're... Uh, who's been batting away cold calls from investors urging her to sell her home. So investors are getting aggressive because they're cold calling. They're doing what we do as investors, right? We do marketing to try to get a hold of homeowners who may be interested in selling. And in Newark, the mayor said that the city was considering legislation that aimed at preventing steep rent increases and urging the state to come up with a blanket policy to regulate institutional ownership. So North, and then you have North Carolina, the state that has been, that has seen an influx of people from the Northeast. Homeowner groups are taking matters into their own hands. For example, the do, 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 some uh, HOA in North Carolina is taking on investors by proposing amendments to their covenants to insist that the buyer live in the home or leave it vacant for at least six months before renting it out. So the HOA is now trying to dictate what you can do with your property. They're coming in and they're basically bullying people out of their out with cash offers, says the president of the HOA. And bullying people out to take money, like yeah. that shut up and take my money thing. Like, I'll give you three hundred thousand dollars even though it's worth two fifty. Like the seller does not they're not holding a gun to their head and saying, sign the documents. It's like yeah. I just put a stack of cash here. Like you can take it or not. I'm not forcing you to do it. Like money talks. That person wanted to sell. Exactly. Obviously. And there's like, you know what? I can take that money and I can do something else with it. I can move. Like, but, but it's, it's the terms they use that upsets me. Right. Because they're, they, they always use these terms to paint investors in such a negative light. You know, that it's like, they're bullying. They're being aggressive. They're doing all this. We know for a fact, and we have so many testimonials of people that are like, man, it, it was so great that I was able to work with you guys, you know, because you were able to give me what I needed. I didn't want to go on the market. I didn't want to deal with a retail buyer. I didn't want to deal with agents. We were able to help them out, you know, where other people couldn't have helped them. So we're not predators. We're not stealing homes from people. We're simply giving them an option, letting them know, hey, if you want to sell, we're interested in buying. Right. And here's the perks of selling to us. We pay cash. We can close quickly. You know, if you need more time in your home, you can stay in your home. We'll rent it back out to you. Or you can stay a few extra weeks so you have time to move. Like we're very flexible where retail buyers aren't. Yep. So it goes on to say that in California last month, Democratic Assemblyman uh, Christopher Ward introduced the California Housing Speculation Act. Yeah, it's a cool name. Um, the bill aims to discourage the flipping of properties by short-term investors 
by adding a tax on profits from sales that occur within three years of purchase. Some critics of Ward's flip tax say the bill would actually harm the individual buyer. That's because the act doesn't differentiate between investor properties or owner-occupied ones, and it favors large investors who can come in and sit on properties over small-time house flippers. Uh, over small-time house flippers, so homes are place are uh, homes are places to live in, says the assemblyman. Homes help families preserve and grow their wealth. Homes aren't a quick trade on the market, and this activity unchecked affects us all. So that that's I, such bullshit. Well, the, those are the things that we talked about a lot. Is that policies are going to drive the growth of certain states and the decline of others? Yep. Right. You got to go if you're an investor and you're looking at where should I invest, where should I go? You got to go to places that are investor friendly, that are landlord friendly. You can't, that's why so many investors are leaving California and New York, like in New York, it's getting to a oh, point where well, you can't. The traditional investors we're talking about, like no money is leaving those. Like McElroy yeah. was talking about, he's like, banks aren't uh, lending. Like, they're like, our money, we don't, we don't even look at the coasts anymore. We're looking inner city because the policies out here are too great. We're leaving with their money. So they're not even loans to big people out there anymore. Yeah. And that and that's the thing, right? Like you're you're looking at all these policies, all these things that are going, coming after investors. The and those states, they're the ones that are going to hurt the most because at the end of the day, homeowners can't afford to buy a house like the houses that we buy with massive foundation issues. Yeah, with that's a, the, the that house that we just purchased that you sent me the video of the wall that moves because of the freaking termites and all the rot that the wood has yeah. and all that. Like what so, we buy, like. Who else is going to do it? Yeah. The government's going to go in and do it? Yeah, like, we're not buying retail. Yeah. It's like the reason we get discounts, the reason we buy, one of the ones we just bought right now, it's got foundation issues. The bank does not lend against a house that has foundation issues. Yeah. They won't. The only person can buy that is cash. So how am I hurting the retail investor? Yes, I put it on the market at a high price or whatever the market price is, but you can't list that. We bought it for 100 and it's worth 200 you can't put it on a hundred and two hundreds. Like I'm a cash investor that in that price, the value of that house is a hundred thousand dollars. Cause that's what somebody's willing to pay for. Right. But now I'm trying to add housing supply and they're right. And I heard about this on another podcast. I didn't remember as soon as you said it, they're like, Oh, extra tax. If you flip a house, it's like, that's going to hurt the head. It's only going to help the hedge funds. Oh yeah. 100%. Because they can look at it like, dude, I can afford to sit on this thing for two years. And it's like, this is going to, this isn't going to slow pricing down. It's just going to hurt the person that doesn't have the cash or you have to live in it for six months. A hedge fund can keep buy a house and let it sit for six months. Yeah. No problem. Yeah. And that, and that's always been the problem, right? That you look at things like that and these policies and everything. And who are you hurting? You're hurting the small investors. You're hurting the small businesses because the big guys, the hedge funds, the ultra, you know, the REITs and all of these, they can afford to sit on this. I mean, look at Zillow, look at Open Door. They constantly run out of deficit. They're always losing money. Their only hope is yeah. that, well, Zillow doesn't do it anymore because they actually ran that business into the ground. But like the, the Open Door is a Ponzi scheme. The only way they stay in business is they got to raise the next round of investors at a higher rate to keep making money because they don't make money on their real estate. So it's like, these are the things that they can afford to do it. So all you're doing with these policies is helping the big guys, 
right? You're helping the rich people get the, these massive companies just get even bigger and you're killing the smaller guys or you're forcing all the smaller guys to leave. Mm-hmm. And where do they go? To states like Texas, Florida, Tennessee, the Midwest is growing like crazy. We're talking about Kansas City, all these places because those places are like, no, we 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 need investors because investors are the ones that are coming in, buying up these houses that are falling apart, revitalizing them and put, selling them to retail buyers that are willing to move into a house that they can actually live in. So it's one of those things that's like, this is so dangerous, The the what they're trying to do and everything. And it and it's been proven. I mean, we keep seeing their it's, policies time and time again. And it's like, you guys keep going further and further down. Like, more and more people are leaving. People are getting hurt left and right. It's like, do you not see the writing on the wall? Well, you- that's what I'm saying. Like, policies, politicians, and the, the, the government versus free markets. Like, the free market can pivot and change so much faster than what you can write those policies and do those things. But that's also why, like I say, like that's why I don't want high prices to increase this fast because that's the crap that comes out of it because people start screaming they can't afford their houses and stuff like that and they blame us. Yeah. And then the politicians go, well, well we got we to gotta regulate that. It's like, now you've just taken more inventory off the market because now how can that house get fixed? The government, the city, the state going to step in and do it? Cause, yeah, because they do things efficiently. Well, okay, let's say that's what you want them to do. You want them to step up. Well, who gets the money? Yeah, you got to tax the rich. Okay, we'll raise taxes. Most of the taxes is rosen by W two employees, so everybody's tax bases go up, and then the government sucks up all the money and all of their red tape that's through everything is like you're just gonna waste a bunch of money. Yeah, and then it's gonna be back to it's like, and then the housing price is still gonna be high, or even if it's low, that means your taxes are gonna be high. Then you're complaining about taxes, so like that. It, the policy isn't the thing. It's like it's it's a global economy that's all has this problem. But like that's why I want. Prices to increase. That's why I want the raised rights to increase. I want pricing to stop increasing at 10, 20% year over year. It needs to come back down. So, you know, as we start wrapping up, one of the things that uh, I attended a conference this past uh, week and Patrick, but David gave uh, one of the keynotes there. And one of the things he said was, these are the times where smart people are going to be able to add another, at least another zero to their net worth. So this is a time for you that's listening or watching right now to really start paying attention to the opportunities that are going to come. There's going to be a huge transfer of wealth when there always is when crises like this happen. And when a transfer of wealth of this size occurs, if you're not standing on the right side, guess what? The wealth is transferring from your pocket. You understand? So if you position yourself correctly, and I'm not, we're not giving financial advice. What we're trying to tell you is you need to get financially educated. You need to get educated on whatever it is that you want to do, but you got to go deep on it. You want to get into real estate, spend the next hundred hours, watch all of our YouTube videos. I mean, we've covered everything from flipping, buying hold, how we renovate, how we hire contractors, how we negotiate with sellers, how we do marketing. We talk, we share everything. There's nothing we're holding back. There's nothing we're not covering. You understand? And just like our channel, there's so many other channels out there that do exactly the same. Spend, instead of binging on Netflix, binge on on the stuff that you want to learn. Spend the next at least 100 hours getting really educated on this because I do believe all the signs are there. All the people that don't even agree with each other are agreeing that... Something's coming down the line and it's going to be bad, right? 
either you're going to be a victim or you're going to be able to do something about it. So we hope that by you watching this show and by you following us, you get educated enough that you're able to do something and take care of your family, take care of your community, take care of everybody around you, because that's where I think we're all going to prosper and, and actually get out of this. So as we wrap up, Mr. Barr, what are your parting words? Be smart. Don't speculate. Educate. Don't do drugs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, thank you all for joining us today. Remember, subscribe, share with your friends, let people know, help us spread the word. Our, our mission is to really help you get financially educated. Check me out on Instagram. I post there now. Yes. Uh, <laughs> and uh, we're, we're always sharing. We share everything. If you're local to San Antonio, we do property tours of our projects. We're, you can reach out to us. You can text us at any time. Uh, we're very reachable. We're here to help. So thank you all for watching. And we should be coming back on Fridays more regularly. Uh, we've been so swamped this past quarter, but we're really going to make an effort to be here a little bit more regularly, have more guests on, sharing their opinions and everything. So make sure you subscribe, hit that notification bell so you get notified every time we're about to go live. So thank you all for watching and hope you have an amazing weekend. Signing off.